Well, good morning, church family. My name is Katie Pesson, and I am privileged to serve um, as the executive pastor here at Windsor Road. Um, I'm privileged this morning to bring um, the word of the Lord. I also have a confession to make. I love Black Friday so much. Like, I really, really love it. I know it's all about materialism, and we just had Thanksgiving the day before, and now like the day of, and then I go out and shop, but guys, it's so much fun. So one of my friends posted this meme on Facebook this week, and I thought it was kind of cool. So I just thought I'd ask you guys who you think you are. So let me tell you what they all are, right? And then you can tell me after a bit. So A is Buddy the Elf. Buddy the Elf is just there for fun. He's just there to have a good time. B is our online shoppers. We just stay home. We'll order everything online. We don't need to go out in all that chaos. C is like I have a list and a plan, and I will get everything I want and get home safely. And D is wake me when it's over. I really don't care, right? So just by show of hands, who's Buddy the Elf in this room? Who would say, oh, I'm just there for the fun? Yeah, all right, just a few of you. Um, how about B? Who's a, nope, I'm going to stay home and do all my shopping online. Okay, all right. I see where this is going. Who's a C? <laughs> okay, now who's D? They just really don't care. All right, well. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but now you have to listen to me talk about why I love Black Friday so much for just a minute, so bear with me. So I have to admit, right, I'm Buddy the Elf on Black Friday. I love going out in the chaos. I love the swarms of people. I love how ridiculous it is that we're all standing in line for two hours to buy, like, a toaster. It makes no sense. It's just wonderful. I love it. So the first time I did Black Friday was about 10 years ago, and my roommate and I got up and went to Target to stand in line at 5 a.m., back when, like, Black Friday started on Friday. So we, uh, we got up that morning, and we went and stood outside, and we waited for a while. And then at 5 o'clock, the doors opened. And, like, two minutes after opening, by the time I got in the door, the line, right, was wrapped around the entire store. We met this group of five sisters who had a Black Friday plan. One of them immediately got in line. Three of them ran around the store to pick up all the items on their list from Target. And the fifth sister was the getaway driver. <laughs> so she was waiting for them in the car, and when they got everything they needed, they loaded up and went on into the next store the same way. It was phenomenal. I was super impressed. So it was like 5 a.m., and it's the busiest I've ever seen a store, and I stood outside waiting. And I didn't actually even have anything I was like that excited about getting. It was just fun. And so I wondered, just because I was curious, what the weather might have been like at 5 a.m. on a November morning several years ago. So I looked up. Did you know you can look up the weather history? So I looked up what it was that day. And at 5 a.m. on November 23rd in 2007, it was 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside. <laughs> you guys, there were hundreds of us standing in line in 20-degree weather to get a good deal on, good Friday, on Black Friday. I think it takes a special kind of crazy, or some of you might say an admirable... Um, just desire to find a good deal, to brave the crowds on Black Friday. Well, in today's passage, we read about another kind of determined searching. Today we're going to consider Luke's three parables of lostness. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. It's likely that some who listened as Jesus told these parables might have thought the characters in them were a special kind of crazy, too. A parable, by the way, if you're not familiar with that word, is just a story with a point. One author calls parables stories with ulterior motives. I liked that. I thought that was a good way to describe it. So before we look more deeply at the three parables themselves, 
it's important for us to understand the context in which these parables were recorded for us in the book of Luke. The major theme throughout Luke's gospel is that of God's kingdom and who can be a part of God's kingdom. More specifically, the theme is this, God working out his plan of salvation so that all people can be a part of his kingdom. At the beginning of the book of Luke, we read about God's desire to restore his people through the birth of Jesus, the long-awaited Savior. We read that Jesus announced the coming of God's kingdom for all people. And finally, we read an appeal to the people of God to align themselves with God's saving agenda. God's primary purpose is to work out a way so that all can be saved. Now, as Luke, or as, uh, as Luke um, describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and who can be a part of it. And throughout the book, as he continues teaching that God wants everyone to be saved, a group of Jewish teachers called the Pharisees get more and more frustrated. They're frustrated because Jesus' ideas of who's in and who's out don't line up with theirs. Over and over in the book of Luke, we see the Pharisees grumble about who Jesus chooses to associate with. In Luke 7, Simon the Pharisee is offended when a sinful woman comes and anoints the feet of Jesus in gratitude. In Luke 19, after we've heard the story of how Jesus called Zacchaeus to come down from the tree, we hear that the Pharisees and their scribes were mad that he was associating with a sinner. In Luke 5, Jesus actually calls one of the most sinful people, a tax collector, to be his disciple. His name is Levi. We know him as Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. So after Jesus calls Levi, Levi invites Jesus over for dinner. And the Pharisees and scribes are mad about that too. So Jesus answers them saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And as I started studying this week, I think that often when we read about the Pharisees in Scripture, it's too easy, knowing how it ends, to condemn them for what they thought. In their defense, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were informed by years of rabbinical tradition. This rabbinical tradition reinforced the aspects of God's law that dealt with separateness and purity. It's clear from the Old Testament as we read it that God's people were to be distinct. God's people were to be separate. God's people were to be righteous. One rabbinical commentary on the law of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy even said this, don't associate with a wicked person even to bring him near the Torah. So they were informed by years of teaching that said even for the purpose of trying to help someone find God, don't go near a sinful person. Their entire goal was to stay separate and righteous by keeping their distance from sin. So they were understandably shaken at Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God had come, and in God's kingdom, it's now okay to associate with sinners. This is the mindset, this is the reality that Jesus speaks to in Luke 15. Rachel said earlier um, that Luke 15 is on page 874 of the Bibles that you have in front of you. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, you put your name in this one in front of you and take it home with you today. Let's look now at Luke 15. Verse 1 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You can just hear them, can't you? Oh, that Jesus. He's at it again. Once again, all the most sinful people in town are hanging out with Jesus, eating with Jesus, being accepted by Jesus. And the Pharisees, they're not having it. They're thinking, hasn't he read the Psalms? Psalm 1-1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. How can this man claim to be of God and spend so much time with those people? Now Jesus, of course, knows what they're thinking, and so he decides to explain it to them. He decides to help them understand exactly why it is so very important that he spends so much time with those people. Verse 3 says, he told them this parable. Did you catch that? Who is this parable aimed at? It's aimed at the Pharisees. Jesus knew they were confused, and he wanted to help them understand. So what follows here, and as you heard uh, Rachel and Sierra read earlier, are three very similar parables. All three parables are about something being lost and then being found. All three parables feature celebration when the lost item is found. The items in the three parables grow in importance and value, from the importance of an animal to money to a child, from the value of one sheep in a hundred, one coin in ten, and one of only two sons. So the first and second parables are intended to elicit agreement from the audience. Verse 4 says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And once again in verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? These are rhetorical questions. Of course, in that day, if you lost a sheep, the shepherd would go look for it. Sheep were valuable, and sheep didn't find their way back on their own. In fact, if a sheep gets lost and doesn't see its herd anymore, it may just sit down and give up and die. It won't keep looking for the rest of the sheep. It'll just give up. And also, of course, if a woman only has 10 coins to her name, and each coin is about a day's wage, if she's only got 10 coins to her name, of course she would turn her house upside down to look for the one that went missing. To put that in Black Friday terms, of course, if I was going to buy a new iPhone anyway, and Walmart will offer me a $300 gift card with it, I would lose money if I didn't stand in line for three hours. <laughs> Why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> What's notable in these first two parables is the effort the man and the woman go to in order to find their lost possessions. The shepherd leaves the other sheep and goes after the one that is lost. The woman sweeps the house, and the text says she searches diligently until she finds it. The point of these first two parables is the length that God will go through in order to find what is lost. Here Jesus is making the point that every person, not just Pharisees, not even just Jews, every lost person matters to him, and he will search and find them. After the lost items are found, these first two parables end with a celebration. The man and the woman call their friends and neighbors over to celebrate with them that their lost possessions have been found. Now, at this point, Jesus' listeners 
might have been thinking, okay, that's a little over the top. No one's actually going to, like, call their neighbors to celebrate they found a sheep. But, like, okay, we get it. He was happy. But Jesus' point was this. If a lost sheep or a lost coin are worth celebrating, how much more are lost people being found by God worth rejoicing over? So in these first two parables, Jesus is setting up a pattern. The pattern is repeated in all three parables. First, something's lost. Then the owner looks for something and finds it. And then there's a celebration. Lost the sheep, found the sheep, celebrate the finding of the lost sheep. Lost the coin, found the coin, celebrate the finding of the lost coin. That's just what you do. When something's lost and you find it, you celebrate. And then comes parable number three the parable of the prodigal son. This, of course, is a famous parable. It's the story of a father and his two sons. His younger son comes and asks for his inheritance, which, by the way, in the ancient world, effectively severed the relationship between the father and his son. So he asks for his inheritance, severs himself from his father, and leaves. He goes off to the far country, blows everything he has, and ends up broke. He ends up feeding sheep or pigs, and he's longing for the food that even the pigs were eating. In verse 17, we see the turnaround. When he came to himself, or another translation puts it this way, when he came to his senses, he decided to go home and offer to be his father's slave. He reasons that even his father's slaves are eating better than him. So the story as we know it is that he returns home. The father, who's apparently been watching for him, sees him coming from a long way off and runs to him. He kisses him, welcomes him back, and throws him a party. Now at this point, it's important to note that the headings you see in your Bible didn't exist originally in the manuscript, right? So when you see the parable of the prodigal son, that wasn't there when Luke wrote this. In fact, the first time we saw that heading appear over those verses was in the year 1083 in the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate. The reason I point this out is that many people have argued that actually a better title for this parable might be the compassionate father and his two lost sons. I don't know, maybe that was too long of a heading or something, but for some reason, this parable is commonly called the prodigal son. And so we remember it as though it was simply about the younger son who was lost, returned home, had a party, and the story ends. That would certainly fit the pattern of the first two parables, Lost, found, celebration. Lost son, found son, party, the end. But the parable doesn't end there, does it? The parable continues on. Where it should have ended with a celebration, we find the elder brother out in the field, angry. He's angry that no one told him there was a party happening. He's angry that his brother was accepted back when everyone knows that disobedient children were to be at best disowned and at worst in those days stoned. He's angry that he's served his father all this time and never been given a party like this. He's just angry. So where the story should have ended with a party, instead the father has to go out looking again, this time for the older son. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you should be happy that these sinful people want to know God. Not criticizing them for being lost in the first place. 
But what's beautiful about the grace of Jesus is this. Even as he's correcting the Pharisees, and it's impossible not to read this as a correction to the Pharisees, Jesus shows us that God's love is for everyone. The younger son who's lost in sin and the older son lost in self-righteousness. Because instead of further alienating this older brother, the father affirms him. He reminds him that everything he has belongs to his older son. In essence, he says, son, you don't need to worry. Your little brother being included doesn't mean that you will be excluded. Because Jesus knew that underneath the exterior piety of the Pharisees, there was fear. Fear about the changing status quo. Fear about their own place in God's kingdom if sinners were suddenly invited to the table. And Jesus' invitation to the Pharisees is the same as that of the father to the elder brother. Come in and join the party. The point of all three of these parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, is summed up in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus tells these three parables to make the point that God wants everyone to know him. And not only that, but God wants everyone to know him so badly that he's actively looking for those who are lost. He's active. He's diligent. He's searching to recover his children, all of them. He is searching for his children who are lost in sin, and he is searching for his children who are lost in their long list of self-righteousness. So who can enter the kingdom of God? Psalm 51 says it this way. For you would not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. So the only qualifier for getting into the kingdom of God is knowing you're lost and wanting to be found. Kingdom people realize they're lost. Kingdom people realize that only Jesus could rescue them. And kingdom people live grateful for the grace that they've been given and then extend that same grace to others. At our Celebrate Recovery ministry, which meets every Friday night, every person who speaks introduces themselves the same way. I'm so-and-so. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus. Who? I'm a grateful believer in Jesus. So I'm Katie. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who struggles with depression and anxiety. See, the Gospel of Luke tells us that kingdom people are marked by knowledge of their sin. And they're marked by gratitude that they've been found. And grateful people live differently. You see, in these parables, Jesus was saying that if you have truly experienced the grace of God, you will adopt the mission of the kingdom of God. Today's big idea is this. Kingdom people are grateful people. And grateful people live for the king's mission. Kingdom people are grateful people, and grateful people live for the king's mission. Now, when we're living for the king's mission, grateful people don't keep score. 
The Pharisees and the elder brother, they were concerned with keeping score, with following the rules. And sometimes we are too. I might have hurt him, but he hurt me way worse, so this is on him. Well, I, like, I might look at pornography once in a while, but at least I'm not cheating on my husband. I might lie to my boss to avoid getting called out over a little mistake, but at least I'm not stealing from the company. And hey, I read my Bible, and I go to church every Sunday, so I'm okay. Look, we all do that. We all try to keep score to justify ourselves. But there are a few problems, aren't there, with keeping score? The first is that when we keep score, we exaggerate. The elder brother exaggerated his obedience and his younger brother's disobedience. First you hear the, younger, the older son say, I never disobeyed. Anybody in this room have a son? Never? He's never disobeyed? Okay. And then he says, he devoured your property with prostitutes. Now listen, I have read this passage in every translation I can get my hands on. I have looked up the Greek meanings of the words of wild living that it talks about with the younger brother's excursion to the far country. And I can't find anywhere that says he was sleeping with prostitutes. I just can't find it. Also, did the elder son even know the younger son was back? How did he know what he'd been up to in the far country if he didn't even know he was home to hear the story? He was exaggerating. When we're keeping score, naturally, because we want to win, we have to exaggerate our righteousness and other people's unrighteousness. The second problem with keeping score is that when we keep score, we inevitably start to turn our eyes to compare ourselves with other people. And when we compare ourselves with other people, we turn them into competition. And then we forget that other people aren't the opposition they're our brothers and sisters. They're fellow children loved by God. The elder brother forgot that the younger son wasn't his enemy, but his brother. The third problem with keeping score is this. If we're trying to earn our way into the kingdom of heaven by keeping score, we will lose every time. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus says, lovingly, don't bother keeping score. It's not going to turn out well for you. Just accept my free gift on your behalf. And his invitation to us, like to the elder brother and the Pharisees, is stop keeping score. Just come in and join the party. The second thing grateful people do is this. Grateful people notice who's missing and go find them. I think today we can easily find ourselves paralyzed by the same kind of fear that plagued the Pharisees. It's the fear of contamination. We're afraid that if we associate with sinners, it might give us a bad reputation. We're afraid that if we don't clearly call out sin, what might happen? Now, of course, we need to be careful about how the world influences us. And of course, redeemed kingdom people live like they're not of this world. However, 
the challenge from these parables is that if the God we say we worship is on the move, if he's active, if he's looking for those who are lost, then we who call ourselves his people ought to be doing the same. Jesus' entire mission was wrapped up in saving the lost, bringing them closer to God. Now, as he searches for the lost, he doesn't condone sinful behavior, but it's not his focal point. For Jesus, the outward signs of sin were not the focus. Jesus' focus was fixing the distance between man and God. The distance that led to these outward signs of sinful behavior. See, total separation from the world has never been God's intention. Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus put on flesh. Jesus was interested in befriending undesirables. Jesus didn't care what other people might think. He just wanted the lost to know that he loved them. This should be our central mission as well. What's interesting to me as I read these parables is that the lost items receive special treatment, special consideration, special attention. When the man and the woman in the first two parables realized the sheep and the coin were missing, they had a singular focus, finding their lost item. In the same way, I believe Jesus is calling us to what we call outsider orientation. This means that as a church and as individuals, we should be most concerned with those who have not yet experienced the love and grace of Christ like we have. Now here at Windsor Road, of course, we take care of each other and we want to take care well of those who are here in this community. And at the same time, these parables are clear. What occupies our energy should be how we can find those who are not yet part of this loving, life-changing community. Our passion for finding the lost should be the consuming theme of our entire life. When we live with outsider orientation, it affects our everyday activities. We go to work thinking about who doesn't know Christ and who could use some extra grace today. We go to school wondering how we can live in a way that lets our teachers and classmates know they are loved by God. We think about our family holiday meals as opportunities to serve like Jesus did. So what might that look like in your life or in our church? Who in your life is lost and needs to be found? In the hallway just across from our fireside room is our love wall. The love wall is a place to intentionally pray for those who don't yet know Jesus, those who are still lost. I'd love to encourage you each to make the love wall a normal part of your Sunday routine, to put the names up there of those who you're praying for and to pray for the other names you see up there. When we live with outsider orientation in our homes, our schools, and our jobs, and when we pray passionately and intentionally for the lost, then when we gather on Sundays, we're ready for the lost to show up here. Let's be ready to show Christ-like hospitality and service, whether we're wearing an orange t-shirt or not. Let's be ready so that when those who haven't yet crossed the line of faith show up here, we can love them to Jesus, just like someone did for us. So what happens when grateful people refuse to keep score and instead orient themselves around finding the lost. Well, every once in a while, someone's found 
And then we do what grateful, kingdom-minded people do best. We throw a party. Because grateful people throw parties. The end of each of these parables features celebration. And in all three cases, the celebration was ridiculous. You would not actually call your friends and neighbors to come over if you lost your sheep or your coin. In fact, in the case of the father running and going out to his sons, it was actually improper for the culture of that time. So the picture here is of no holds barred, exuberant, extravagant celebration. That's why here at Windsor Row, we celebrate baptisms publicly because they represent a person being found. That's why when someone shares their story of coming to Christ, we cheer, we applaud, we stand. Grateful kingdom people celebrate because they're thankful. They know what could have been. The shepherd knows his sheep could have been stolen or killed. The woman knows a tenth of all she had could have disappeared forever. The father knew his son could literally have died and in fact had been figuratively dead to him. So what about you? What do you have to celebrate? What could have beens exist in your life apart from the grace of God? For me, the could have beens are really clear. See, this fall marks 10 years from one of the darkest seasons of my life. 10 years ago, I was at my lowest I believed the lie that I wasn't worth anything. Like the younger son, I didn't feel worthy. I felt ugly. I felt unlovable. The pain was so bad that I didn't want to go on living. And so 10 years ago this fall, I tried to end my life. But God didn't abandon me. He knew then what I couldn't see. He saw the beautiful future he had for me. And so now 10 years later I celebrate because I know what could have been. I know what I could have missed. My wedding, my ordination to ministry, the birth of my daughter and my son, amazing trips, sweet time with friends, loved ones coming to know Christ. I could have missed all of that. So I celebrate because I know what could have been in my life. And when I think about all that God has rescued me from, I cannot help but want other people to know him. When I think about how good he's been to me, I can't help but talk about it. When we consider even for a moment how much he loves us, well then we know that correcting the behavior of the lost is not nearly as important as making sure they know that Jesus loves them. So church family choose to live as kingdom people. Choose gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. Choose to celebrate God's goodness and grace. And choose to spend your life helping others who are lost find their way home. Let's pray. Father God, you have been so good to us. You have showered your grace on us. Grace that we don't deserve. grace that we can't earn. And so here we are this morning again thankful. And as we celebrate communion, as we take the juice and the bread and remember again Jesus blood shed for us, Jesus body broken for us to forgive us for our sins, we drink grateful. 
we drink thankful. And we eat and drink allegiance to your mission. We drink and eat to say that we are living as kingdom people and we are going to be about the mission of the king. And Father, we know we can't even do that without your grace. And so this moment is both a shout of gratitude and a declaration of our, indep- of, of our dependence on you. Thank you so much, Jesus. Amen.